I distinctly remember hearing someone yell, stop that van. From CBC Podcasts, an investigation into how young men are being recruited and radicalized on the internet. And she asked me if I was friends with a guy named Alec Manassian. By a new supercharged form of hate. On Facebook, police say he wrote the incel rebellion has already begun. A dark online subculture that's spilling over into the real world. Boys Like Me, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Emil Niazi, in for Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. This was a targeted attack. To terrorize the trans community, the queer community, women at large. Incidents of hate crime have gone up. Nearly half of all incidents were linked to extremist groups. They think that they can impose change through violence. A network of hate and how it evolved. That's coming up on Day 6. Today, your new summer playlist... How Afrobeats Conquered Canada. Fire and water. You lose the canopy and you lose organic soils. How wildfires set the stage for flooding. And getting in on the grid. You can kind of meld any number of other personal interests into Formula One. Why women are flocking to Formula One. All today on Day 6, the Craving Clean Air edition. In terms of the investigation that has been conducted thus far, investigators have reason to believe that this was a planned and targeted attack motivated by hate related to gender expression and gender identity. On Wednesday, three people were stabbed during a gender studies class at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. And as you just heard from Waterloo's police chief, they believe the attack was motivated by hate. Also on Wednesday, protesters showed up outside a Drag Queen Storytime event in Ottawa, voicing their anti-trans messages. We got obviously a counter-protest over there, a little bit weaker than last time, but it's, it's still, it's still uh, impressive. Well, they got their unions and a bunch of uh, mentally ill, <laughs> unemployed individuals. Many of the protesters wore red baseball caps with Save Canada on the front, kind of like those MAGA caps associated with Donald Trump. And on Twitter, their call to turn out for the protest was billed as a convoy event. Convoy as in the self-described freedom convoy that occupied large parts of downtown Ottawa just a year and a half ago. Between 2019 and 2021, reported hate crimes in Canada went up by 72%. The victims of those crimes were mainly targeted for their race, religion, gender, or sexual orientation. Grant LaFleche is an investigative journalist with the Hamilton Spectator. He's been reporting on hate groups in and around southern Ontario, and he says they're evolving in some interesting and potentially dangerous ways. Grant, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we just heard a clip of protesters in Ottawa this week. You've been documenting similar protests in other places, mostly anti-LGBTQ in theme. So who are those protesters? Can you tell us a bit about who is showing up at these events? Well, for anybody who's been keeping an eye on these protests from even before the Ottawa occupation, they're going to recognize some faces. What we have found in our investigations has been that the loudest voices, the most prominent voices, and the organizers of these protests were part of or are part of what nominally gets called the Freedom Convoy. These are people who were protesting originally, you know, masks and public health measures, eventually vaccines, and they've now shifted their focus uh, to story time with drag queens or kings. 
and sort of transgender people more broadly. So you wrote about Southern Ontario becoming the fastest growing white nationalist community in Canada. Why there? Well, I, I should caveat by pointing out that we weren't saying that Southern Ontario was the, had the fastest growing white nationalist community. The community itself is claiming that. And what you're referring to is a group called Nationalist 13, which used to exist only online on a social media platform called Telegram. They've now expanded into doing stunts and other events in public to try to get attention. And as for why Southern Ontario, it's not just limited to here. This group predominantly operates in, in Hamilton, but they're part of a larger global a white nationalist uh, neo-fascist network that calls itself White Lives Matters. Well, let's talk about Nationalist 13. What can you tell sure. us about them and their members? Um, we know that online, on Telegram, they have an audience of uh, now more than 1,100 subscribers, uh, and they pump out, you know, every other day or so, uh, pretty overt, you know, white nationalist, neo-Nazi messages uh, targeting the Jewish community. They're talking about brown and black people. They're talking about the transgender and LGBTQ plus community more broadly, and they have over time become a little bit more emboldened. So they step out of their digital shadows. They now do flag waves. Uh, they go into public parks to do what they consider to be combat or survival training because they believe there's going to be a race war to come that they need to be prepared for. Um, as for specifically who their members are, we don't actually know names yet because they've been very careful to hide their identities. So we know that the ones that act in public, there are, say, about a dozen of them uh, who tend to appear in photographs in places we've been able to identify, but they always have balaclavas on to hide their identities. So they're out in the open, but they're also, you know, careful to maintain sort of a shroud of secrecy. A hundred percent. I mean, they and I think they're aware because of past cases. There was an infamous case last year in Hamilton where a paralegal was outed as a notorious white nationalist. And as a consequence of his being exposed, the uh, Law Society of Ontario revoked his license. So there's consequences to these people if they're identified in public, which is why they've been very, very careful. So they do have these layers of, of security to kind of insulate themselves from public scrutiny, even as they're trying to attract the public's attention. Let's go back to the convoy protests from a year and a half ago. What role sure. did that play in what we're seeing now? One of the interesting things that you will find if you are examine, uh, especially the online activity of, you know, again, this bigger umbrella that gets called the, the Freedom Convoy, is that on many issues, they're singing from the same hymnal as the white nationalist groups. So, you know, issues around vaccines, issues around pride, issues around uh, specifically uh, drag story time and the transgender community, they're of the same mind. They have the same issues when they're going after these types of points. And when you, and this is how I found Nationalist 13 actually, was in investigating who was at the anti-drag, anti-trans protests and examining their online communities, I was finding links and posts that led me eventually to the Telegram White Lives Matters network. Uh, beyond that, though, we know, for instance, that in the convoy, overt white nationalist characters like Pat King 
uh, were part of the organizing groups. You may remember, and I think maybe CBC had been the first to report this, the emails between other organizers like Tamara Lynch and, and Mr. Ditcher about Pat King, they were saying things like, well, we know he's a problem because he's voiced these overtly white nationalist ideas on his own videos and social media channels, but we need him because he will bring people. So they knew he was a white nationalist and they wanted him involved anyway. Beyond that- He was that, a recruitment tool. He was a recruitment tool. I mean, for I think for the other organizers, he was somebody who would bring bodies. For white nationalists, it was like, oh, look, one of our own has this prominent position in this giant event in Ottawa. And they're, they're concerned about the same things we're concerned about, even though the stuff they're concerned about is, is super pernicious. And you know what's interesting, Emil, the way they project themselves on Telegram, for instance, is they're offering that connection to folks. So if you're somebody who is looking for you know, friends or looking for contact or looking for a community to be part of, they're saying, come to us because we will provide that for you. And that could be a very powerful lure. So they, they sort of found a way that they could be involved in these bigger public protests without having to necessarily show up with a, a, a swastika flag because they're able to talk to other people about the things they think are important with other people who agree with them. And it's really only a hop, skip, and a jump from some of that stuff to go right into the rabbit's warren of overt white nationalism. So as you're watching this world of hate, what's your biggest concern uh, as, as you see this sort of unfolding across the country? I sort of have two twin concerns. And the, the first one is just that somebody in these groups will act out in a in a terribly violent fashion and people will get seriously hurt or killed. I mean, you know, we know in other types of extremist groups like the incel groups uh, that's resulted, you know, there was the van attack in, in Toronto. Um, we know that there were racist attacks like this. There was a van attack in uh, London, Ontario a couple of years ago that resulted in, in people being killed. Um, the more these groups push the anger and frustration buttons for people and, and, and demonize other groups who are different and blame them for perceived wrongs just heightens the chance that one of them or several of them will act out in a violent manner and somebody will get hurt and killed. My other concern is how much of this is going to bleed into our mainstream politics. Uh, will politicians, particularly those in parties that are right of center and are competing for votes with a group like, say, the PPC, swing even harder in that direction in order to win enough votes in a closely contested election? Like, will the federal conservatives, for instance, swing further to the right to ensure they don't lose votes to the PPC if they're in a, a tight race with the liberals in, in some riding or another? And we're seeing some signs of that, right? We look at what's happening in New Brunswick and the changes to legislation there uh, pertaining to what happens in schools with transgendered students. Uh, Pierre Poliev, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party, has said this week to the Prime Minister, you should butt out of what's happening in the provinces regarding this stuff. Uh, just let them do what they want to do. And he's beginning to dog whistle in that direction. And he was marching with Freedom Convoy folks during the Ottawa occupation. So I think that there's a concern on my part and, and shared by others that this is almost the Trumpification of our politics if it, if it just seeps too far uh, into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for being on this important story, Grant, and thanks for, for chatting with me today. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Grant LaFleche is an investigative journalist with the Hamilton Spectator. His series, Hate Rising, can be found through Metroland Media. Six. 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 Six.
Here's another story we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Fireworks in Canada Day are a long-standing and familiar pairing. But this year, there are more signs of a pushback. Cost, noise pollution, waste, and the threat they pose to pets and wildlife are all factors. And the elephant in the room this year? Why add more fire and more smoke to what the wildfires have already caused? In Montreal this week, La Ronde Amusement Park cancelled its international fireworks event over air quality concerns. Also, no fireworks display on the waterfront at Vancouver's Canada Place today. Calgary's Canada Day fireworks display was cancelled almost two months ago, but then was reinstated in June after a lot of opposition online. In Ottawa, City Council this week gave the city's fire chief the power to ban residents from launching fireworks, citing the recent wildfires and fears that fireworks could start more fires. Meanwhile, Winnipeg, Wakefield, Quebec, and Waterloo, Ontario have opted for drone light shows this year. Still to come on day six, how Formula One racing is winning over fans and reinventing itself as a sport for everyone. Let's open the sport up. I'm Emil Niazi, in for Brent Banbury. That's Calm Down by Nigerian singer Rayma with Selena Gomez. It is the most streamed Afrobeats song of all time on Spotify. And if Afrobeats was once a niche genre, it's definitely not anymore. Last month, the Grammys announced a new category to celebrate African songs racking up streams all over the world. And last week, Spotify launched a dedicated site called Afrobeats, the journey of a billion streams to highlight the successes of African artists. And although countries like the US, the UK and France stream more Afrobeat songs, Spotify lists Canada as one of the top three emerging markets for this genre. I'm not entirely surprised we're now in the top three. Uh, I would have loved us to be number one <laughs> to be playing Afrobeats. That's Toronto MC Bondé VOA. The VOA stands for... The Voice of Africa. MC Bondé has been a DJ and an MC specializing in Afrobeats since the early 2000s. Back then, people told him that his focus on African music would actually limit his career. People were like, no, don't do that. Just call yourself MC Bondé because you're limiting yourself. You know, you need to branch out. You're a great MC, whether it be it a Caribbean event or whether it be it a Canadian event or any other nationality event. I'm like, no, I, I want to represent my culture, so I'm sticking to it. And for a long time, club DJs just didn't play Afrobeats. No one was playing African music. No one. They'll be like, what is that? It was only hip-hop, reggae, R&B, and uh, soca. But now, it's a whole different era. A DJ cannot play a set without including one or two or three Afrobeat songs. What I wanted, um, which is the African music to be international, worked. MC Bondé told us what's driving Afrobeat success here in Canada and around the world. It's just great music. 
I feel that the music has grown. The beats are way better. The production is getting better and better. You can dance to it. You can vibe to it. And, you know, a lot of these African songs, when they come out, they always have these dance moves. And everyone always wants to emulate those dance moves. Hearing it over and over again helps. Repetitiveness will definitely get somebody attached to it. And I had people requesting songs on radio that uh, they didn't even know the title of the song, but they knew how to just sing the lyrics. They might not be the right lyrics. You know, it might be the making up my own lyrics, but they would know the song and they would want to hear it uh, on radio and request it all the time. The king of Afro beats is back, baby. That is. Another major thing that has helped Afrobeats to grow in Canada is the big collaborations with some of the big artists that everyone knows. If Davido is to collaborate, which he did with Chris Brown, everybody knows Chris Brown. So. Chris Brown's fans are tapped into Davido as well. They start looking for his music. Rema just did a remix of his hit song Calm Down with uh, Selena Gomez. That is like one of the most streamed songs, and everybody loves that. Calm down, calm down. People refer to that song now when somebody is acting kind of crazy, they just like, calm down. That's another thing about Afrobeats. People are loving it more because most of these songs, they have catchy choruses that everybody can sing along to. So before all these big collaborations or before we started getting recognition internationally, there were artists like Two-Face Idibia from Nigeria with African Queen. We had people like Debange. They were doing it solo and pushing the African music and they broke out internationally. African music has a huge influence uh, on the international market. It's unfortunate, I'll be honest with you, that some of the music has been stolen without giving credit to the African artists. You know, we, you know we've had big name artists sample uh, some African beats and not even giving credit Speaking of which, Ugandan artists have come together now to kind of work together to license their music because their music has just been taken away from them 
corporations have taken advantage, but Uganda is now coming together as artists so that whoever plays it, they get credit or they get paid for it. What I really want for the future of Afrobeats in Canada is to have platforms, to have radio stations designating African music. Not only for one day, not only for a few hours, but having uh, full shows that run weekly uh, for the whole week. I'm hoping for bigger platforms playing African music to fly the flag of Afrobeats from Vancouver all the way to Newfoundland. That's Toronto MC Bonday, the voice of Africa. Formula One is brutal. It can get tough. It can get ugly. What a race! Amazing! You can be the hero today, but forgotten tomorrow. Everybody's different, but the best ones can step up. This week, Ryan Reynolds stepped up to support Formula One team Alpine. He and a group of investors are backing the team for more than $200 million. I guess this means he's over the senators. For the non-gearheads like myself, Formula One is the motorsport with cars that look like low-riding land rockets. Think big exposed tires and breakneck races through Monaco. You need to respect the speed. But the second a driver has fear, you need to retire. In the past, Formula One cultivated an image of exclusivity, partnering with unattainable luxury brands. But that stereotype of an F1 fan as a middle-aged male mogul has always been a bit off. And it's becoming less true by the day. Today's Formula One fans are young and diverse, They love the strategy and the mechanical details, but they also follow the fashion, the politics, and the personalities. And a lot of them, in fact, more than 40%, are women. Verstappen saying Hamilton left him no space, but Max has to box right now and laugh 8 out of 71 because his little uh, touch with Hamilton. That's not gone well for multiple teams. I don't know what's happening in this race. This is insane. Lily Herman is the writer and creator of Engine Failure, a Formula One culture newsletter. She's here to tell us about the gear shift in the F1 fandom. Lily, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have this conversation. And, you know, I'm really loving that somehow Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney have become like the patron saints of European sports in North America. (laughs) (laughs) Did it surprise you that, that those two and Michael B. Jordan, three, you know, very North American celebrities, have made this huge investment in Formula One? 
You know, I, I am and I'm not in the sense that obviously everyone knows the the very wild tale of of Ryan and Rob going over to Wrexham AFC and doing everything they're doing there. Uh, I also found out even I didn't, I, I think I'd heard this, but didn't quite know about it, but that Michael B. Jordan also is a, a minority owner of a different soccer team, or I should say football team uh, <laughs> uh, across the pond. So uh, I think it was surprising in that I don't know you know, how deeply the three of those guys follow Formula One past maybe a surface level extent. But the idea that they seem to be just collecting yeah, European sports teams is, is uh, continuously fascinating to me. I know. I love it. Um, but the North American audience for F1 seems to have been growing steadily in the last few years. What do you think makes up for that? The popular answer that you hear a lot is there was obviously and there still is a docu-series on Netflix called Drive to Survive. It premiered five seasons ago. And, and that's how I know a lot of, in particular, Americans have gotten into Formula One. I will say, and I always point out to people that in the mid-2010s, an American-based firm called Liberty Media actually bought the majority ownership of the Formula One brand. And a huge part of their strategy, so this is years before Drive to Survive premieres was let's open the sport up. Let's, you know, there was a huge um, push to put things on social media from teams, from drivers, from, from all these other sponsors, you name it. They were starting to be a little more open towards content creators and podcasters and writers and journalists, especially those who weren't already sort of in the paddock for decades to begin with. And then there were all these kind of micro other factors, obviously the pandemic being one, F1 was one of the first sports to really get going again after the initial global shutdowns that we saw. So they, they got their 2020 season underway in summer of 2020. Uh, and you know the list goes on and on. But I think it was just, it's the perfect example of 18 different factors, all of which really got going at different times, all coalesced at the same time to create this moment where we're seeing an enormous amount of interest, especially in North America, around this sport and this culture and this community. It feels like a big moment for Formula One, right? And and like you said, Drive to Survive, the Netflix show, seems to have driven some of that buzz. What did you think of the show yourself? I really enjoyed the show. I got into Formula One through the show. I will say, I think Drive to Survive, while the show, I think, deals with the same types of criticisms as literally any other reality TV show that has ever existed around how, how quote unquote, real or fake the storylines are, the portrayals of the different parties involved. I think it does a great job of, for lack of a better term, you get the vibe, right? <laughs> you watch Drive to Survive and you understand it's high speed. It's it, There's obviously a, a life or death component to this. These guys are all a little emotionally stunted and a little petty. And, and that is, in fact, all true in F1, even if maybe some of the particulars on the show don't play out in the exact same way in real life. You, you know, you talked a bit about, you know, why people have been drawn to it. But let's talk about who is watching Formula One, because I think when I picture like a NASCAR fan, I have a very specific idea, but that's not necessarily accurate. So who is a, an F1 fan? So I think it, it still very much is a male dominated sport. Obviously, there's a huge focus on the fact that it is a European based and, and European-founded car racing series. But I do think, especially over the last half decade, you've seen more women, more people of color, more more queer folks starting to enter the scene um, and also st uh, starting to be a, a lot more vocal about the fact that they are F1 fans. It's not just something, you know, someone has an interest they maybe do at home by themselves, maybe one or two other friends know about it. You see a lot of people really especially in this post-pandemic world, uh, trying to find communities. There's a lot more of that going on, I think, nowadays than, than there had been in F1. And I think that goes for a lot of sports and just a lot of different communities in general, even outside of athletics. 
do you think everybody's happy about those changes? You know, are there, is there any pushback from people who, who maybe are dismissive of, of the show? Or, you know, what have you noticed about some of, of sort of the other viewpoints happening in the fandom? Yeah, so not everyone is particularly happy <laughs> to, have, to have new people entering. Um, there's lots of reasons for that. I think, to put it bluntly, there, the sport like is a microcosm of the world. So we see sexism, we see racism, homophobia, transphobia, some xenophobia, what have you. Uh, so that just comes out plain and simple. There's no real way to, to say it otherwise. Um, I, and I think, too, on top of that, there can be a lot of, for any community, a lot of trepidation and apprehension when you have new people joining in general and you're not really quite sure what they're doing here. They maybe not don't look like other people who've joined that community previously. So I, I can at least on a grand scale, if I'm extending quite a bit of empathy, understand that that sort of concern. But I think that anytime that there's that there's change, particularly in a very fast or at a very fast pace, I should say, you're going to have people who push back or who are very nervous about it or who who take a while to sort of find their footing at the very least. And then how about as an organization, you know, is any of that diversity trickling down to the drivers, the pit crew, the management? Uh, not that quickly. And that's a huge topic of conversation within F1. At the end of the day, for instance, there's only been one black driver in Formula One, and that is current, you know, he's a seven-time world champion, Lewis Hamilton. Obviously, there's only been a handful of women who've even participated in any form of a Formula One weekend up until this point in its 73-year history. Um, and I, I think that there are lots of initiatives that are trying to get get things squared away as far as both equality and equity are concerned. But it is a very long road, and you're dealing with a lot of people who perhaps haven't had to think about those kinds of topics or had those kinds of conversations before. And so it can be a real uphill battle to just get them to even take it seriously and then figure out what exactly you're going to do action stepwise. You know, I'm honestly almost sold to watch myself. <laughs> um, but for anyone who's still kind of on the fence, how would you pitch Formula One fandom? So I, I like to say jokingly, I don't know how many viewers in Canada have ever watched uh, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, we love the show. <laughs> there we go. Um, I, I never like to make assumptions, but you really don't know. Um, but uh, so obviously, Bill Hader, one of the most famous comedians here in the States, has a great character on that show called Stefan, who, you know, his, his catchphrase is, you know, this club has everything. Uh, I think F1 is similar to Stefan in the sense that th this sport really does have everything. So if you do care about the engineering, the science, the man versus machine aspect of F1, you can easily find tons of information on that. And it's fascinating. Uh, if you are into racecraft and strategy, again, it's a sport where it has a little bit of everything, the technique and the strategies of the drivers, the teams, you know, that all matters. And, and something as simple as the tire a driver is using can completely blow up their entire race, their entire season, what have you. Uh, and then if you do like the culture aspects, whether that be the driver mail, it's called silly season when all the drivers are changing teams and there's all this drama right now over if a certain team is going to change their name. We have that. There's obviously gossip around the driver's personal lives. There's a huge fashion and style component that has been around for a bit in Formula One. And above all, I will say that there's a lot of really passionate fans in Formula One. There are all these different niche communities. So I think that there, there's honestly something for everyone. And I think it's a really fascinating time to be joining the fandom and seeing the extent to which you can kind of meld any number of other personal interests into Formula One. I love it. And I think I know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> Lily, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Lily Herman is the creator and writer of Engine Failure, a Formula One culture newsletter. Still to come on day six, author Sarah Smarsh on Dolly Parton and the women she sang about. That particular demographic has precious few ambassadors.
I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emil Niazi, in for Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, available wherever you get your podcasts. And at cbc.ca slash day6. A whole new weather-related emergency. Flooding. After a wildfire, heavy rain has turned out to be a somewhat of a mixed blessing as concern over wildfires now turning to flooding. Wildfires followed by flooding. This week, air quality alerts continue to be issued across North America as smoke from Canadian wildfires once again reached far and wide. And as wildfires become more frequent, more severe, they can also increase the risk of future flooding. In 2021, Jen Clark visited the area around Parker Cove, a community in the Okanagan Valley near Vernon, B.C. The area had just been devastated by the White Rock Lake fire, one of the largest and fiercest the region had ever seen. Jen Clark is a geoscientist and consultant. She concluded that because of the fire, flooding was more likely in the following few years. And then this spring, flooding came to Parker Cove. Jen Clark is in Kelowna, B.C. Jen, good morning and welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Emil. So it's almost counterintuitive to imagine wildfires and floods as being so intertwined. How are these two things connected? Wildfire has the potential to have very dramatic effects on the natural processes that are occurring in a watershed area. So watersheds that have been burned, um, particularly those kind of watersheds with steep terrain, have the potential for much higher peak flows. Potential for flooding is higher. This is because wildfire consumes not only the forest canopy, but also the organic soils mantling the mineral soil surface. So normally these act to intercept precipitation and to slow the water runoff coming down the slopes. And it also protects those soils from erosion. So when you get wildfire, when you lose the canopy and you lose organic soils, water is no longer soaking into the ground and we may have faster runoff and higher peak flows as a result. Right. So normally it's almost like a sponge, that soil, it absorbs the water. But you're saying in this case, it almost becomes like a water slide. Yeah. So in some watersheds, particularly in drier environments, a high severity wildfire can change the chemical composition of the soil. So depending on the heat of the fire, the severity of the fire, and depending on the thickness of that organic material, you can have the development of water repellent or hydrophobic soils. And this is a a unique condition. It's essentially like stretching out a sheet of plastic over the soil surface. It's also a somewhat transient condition, so it doesn't persist necessarily for a long period of time, but it can be several years. Several years. 
Well, so in 2021, you went to Parker Cove in the Okanagan after the White Rock Lake fire. How bad was that damage? What did you see when you got there? I worked on a post-wildfire natural hazard risk assessment for the province, BC. And the results of that assessment that included all of the catchments draining into the north end of Okanagan Lake found that Whiteman Creek watershed burned quite severely. Approximately 70% of the watershed was burned, and over 30% of that burned at high severity. And what that means is that the trees were blackened and all the organic soils mantling the soil surface were lost. I observed those conditions, and Whiteman Creek is a steep watershed. It's a large watershed, very steep slopes that connect directly with the stream channel. And in addition to that, large lengths of the channel were actually burned as well. And when you lose the riparian forest, you also have a greater chance that sediment, debris, woody material becomes delivered into the stream and mobilized. And this can cause downstream problems. 70%, that's a lot to lose. You went there to make a risk assessment. So what did you conclude about their future risk of, of flooding? The results of the assessment indicated that there was a high likelihood for post-wildfire flooding. In terms of the risk assessment, when you consider the community downstream, this resulted in a high to very high risk for those residents. And then fast forward to the spring in May, they, they actually did experience flooding there. Is that right? That's right. And what did you think when you saw that? Um, you know, w- were they forewarned? Were they able to take any steps when you sort of let them know what that risk assessment was? The recommendations that came out of the report were implemented immediately and were in place for the first freshet of 2022. What, what, what do you mean when you say the first freshet of 2022? Uh, so the fire took place in the late summer of 2021. The assessment was completed in time to provide some recommendations for the first spring. And spring flows in this area are driven by snow melt. And in burned watersheds, When you lose the forest canopy, you also have a greater amount of snow accumulation, and the snow can also melt faster. So you have um, not only more snow and more water, but faster runoff. So those recommendations were in place for the first spring after the fire, and um, those included preparing the community with uh, equipment and sandbags and to be prepared. You mentioned it, you know, it can be years after a fire that that soil can be impacted. How long is a community at risk for flooding after a fire? Well, the highest impacts typically occur within the first few years. Uh, Although the effects can typically diminish over time, they can persist for many years sometimes up to decades, until the forest recovers. So given what is looking to be a a very intense wildfire season, perhaps one of the worst on record, how worried are you about the possibility of this kind of thing happening more often, of us seeing more Parker Coves across the country? Of course, I, I am quite worried. I'm worried because a large majority of the population live on alluvial fans and in areas that are downstream from fire-affected areas. 
And so the risk of flooding after wildfire persists, um, not only immediately after the fire, but for some time to come. So I am worried that with increasing wildfire, both extent of wildfire and severity of wildfire, that these risks will continue to prevail. Well, Jen, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Jen Clark is a geoscientist and consultant in Kelowna, British Columbia. I thought of Dolly Parton as this singer with the really big boobs who was in the movies with, like, the really big boobs. I I didn't have much of an idea of her. That's Canadian children's author Robert Munch in a documentary called The Book Lady about Dolly Parton's Imagination Library program. Dolly started the program in 1995, and this week it hit a huge milestone. Our 3,000 community partners across the country have helped us gift more than 200 million books to children and families. Is that not amazing? Today, we know Dolly Parton for lots of things. But that early impression Robert Munch describes has stuck. Her appearance has come up a lot in interviews over the years, but it's a look that she herself has carefully crafted. When I was little, I patterned my look after the town trollop in our town. I guess that's what you call them. Well, I thought she was the most beautiful thing. She had all this makeup and hair and all the tight clothes and everything I wanted, so it, it impressed me. According to author Sarah Smarsh, that look keeps Dolly Parton connected to her working-class roots. Like Dolly, Sarah Smarsh grew up poor in the rural U.S. South. And the women in her household related to Dolly's songs. In 2020, Smarsh spoke to Brent Bambry about her book, She Come By It Natural, Dolly Parton and the Women Who Lived Her Songs. Here's part of that conversation. You dedicate this book to your grandma, Betty. What does she have in common? with Dolly Parton and the women Dolly sings about? My grandmother, who had a large hand in raising me, actually, uh, she and Dolly are almost precise contemporaries. They were born just a few months apart, both born to poor rural families. And Dolly Parton's early songs, many of which are very dark, haunting stories Mm -hmm. about adversities faced by poor rural women, really describe uh, the literal hardships of my grandmother's uh, youth. And, uh, you know, as I write in the in the book, uh, that particular demographic has precious few uh, ambassadors, um, or at least mm-hmm. ones who seek to really dignify their experience um, in the way that Dolly does. So she's a special figure for that reason. Well, Dolly has told this joke many times, that it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. And given the kind of ribbing that she's endured for her appearance, why do you think she has maintained her look over five decades? Well, this really gets at the heart of what I think Dolly Parton is all about. Mm -hmm. So she leaves East Tennessee and this poor hauler that she came from and and very much loved and, and still loves in the 1960s, and she set off to become a star in Nashville and then eventually conquered the whole world um, as a crossover in so many ways in popular culture. Well, over the course of all of those decades, of course, she had the um, money and the smarts and, and all the other resources that would be required to sort of transform herself if she so chose. Mm-hmm. But but instead, she really kind of dug her heels in. Mm-hmm. And the, the mission, I think, and I would add mission accomplished, 
uh, is that in her doing so, she forces the listener or the viewer to reconcile whatever negative stereotypes Mm. that they have Mm -hmm. about the place that she comes from, dumb, ignorant, bigoted, foolish, and while walking around with that sort of physical shell, it, immediately just by being herself in the in the deep ways and the real ways that are down underneath all of those layers, just kind of obliterates all of those negative stereotypes. Let's listen to one of her songs, then we're going to talk about it. Okay, here she is. Here's Dolly Parton. Don't try to cry. You. That's Dolly Parton's first hit. The song is called Dumb Blonde. And Sarah, a lot of people thought the song was a joke about Dolly herself. But that's not what's going on here. What's the real message of that song? Well, the real message, and it, it still it, it just gave me goosebumps even thinking about it, really, um, is that she is in that song saying, don't underestimate me because of what you see it's just delicious that that first big hit for her really um, sums up what would be the narrative of her life and career in a man's world, which is a woman who indeed was underestimated and whose creative genius indeed was under-discussed while people were mm-hmm. perhaps discussing the size of her breasts. Ultimately, the joke would be on them. Uh, and indeed, <laughs> um, she's, you know, decades later, finally receiving, I think, the multifaceted adulation and admiration for all of her realist parts and the pieces of herself that don't have anything to do with uh, gender stereotypes or being a sexual object. My life is likened to a bargain store And I may have just what you're looking for If you don't mind the fact that all the merchandise is used But with a little mending it could be as good as new But definitely her creative output was connected to her understanding of feminism as a a woman in the world of country music in the 1960s. And when you look at her early songs, Just Because I'm a Woman, The Bargain Store, Down From Dover, these songs are classics and timeless, but they were not played on the radio. Why not? She was an incredibly radical songwriter in her time. You know, you got to figure the 1960s and and into the 70s, the um, women's movement, as we refer to it today, as sort of second wave feminist movement was nascent uh, and then gaining steam through the 70s. And at that moment, you know, Dolly Parton is coming from a place where there isn't you know, what my family would call book learning. She was never on a Mm -hmm. college campus in a classroom discussing feminist theory or reading the um, transformative feminist texts of the day. And yet she just deeply understood in an organic way, you know, the extent to which it it is indeed a a man's world. And along the way, the, the very realist stories that she could tell were therefore stories of uh, rebellion against that sort of patriarchy. And, you know, why didn't it get played here? Well, because radio stations were, were run by men who felt threatened and offended by her words. Jolene, 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 Jolene. 
One of Dolly Parton's most popular songs, that's Jolene. Sarah, what does that song in particular say to rural and working class women? Jolene speaks to all sorts of people, but the way in which it connects with the space that I come from and the the poor rural place that Dolly Parton called home is, I think, in some ways, the sort of the simultaneous vulnerability and strength in the voice. And even though that voice um, in addressing Jolene, this perceived sort of romantic threat in her relationship, Uh, Even though that storytelling is in a romantic context, there are a lot of parallels for um, women in economically disenfranchised places. So that simultaneous vulnerability where she's saying, you know, please don't take my man. And that simultaneous strength, I would argue, where, you know, regardless of whether she's begging some woman not to take her man, she, she nonetheless is the one with the power of the voice in the song. And she is the one telling the story. And, and, and I would add to just the, the haunting melody of that song, even though it has some aspects of pop production, it's, it's very country at its heart. You started writing elements of this book at the time of the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Why did you feel compelled to write about working class women in relation to that election? In 2016, amid that fraught political climate, I was dismayed by the extent to which headlines over and over were telling a story about the rural place that I come from that suggested that everything that for me represents the wrong direction for our country politically and Mm -hmm. ideologically supposedly was rooted in and to, to be blamed on my people, if you will. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I knew that that wasn't the complete story. I am from a white working class family and, and none of them hold the political views that they were being so, sort of made synonymous with in national headlines. Um, and that same moment, Dolly Parton emerges uh, with her first album in a long time and her first big arena tour in many years. And I was seeing how People of uh, from all walks of life were kind of gravitating around her as a figure in popular culture, loving her. She was really just kind of unifying all these groups of people that were supposed to hate each other. I saw it in those arenas on that concert tour. I saw it on social media. And it occurred to me, darned if Dolly Parton doesn't represent the best of rural America, you know? And, and so I, I wanted to help round out the story about what that space can and does produce. And this got me thinking about really the intersection between class, which I always write about and gender. And that's how I landed on really wanting to look at Dolly Parton as an exemplar of what I call working class feminism, which is a a brand of feminism that I think has been largely overlooked. Sarah Smarsh, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Sarah Smarsh is the author of She Come By It Natural, Dolly Parton and the Women Who Lived Her Songs. She spoke to Brent Bambury in 2020. And I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living, yeah. 
time, weather, and... Rift from the Headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz, three rifts linked by one story in the news. You guess the story that links the rifts, and you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Rachel Platten with Fight Song, Soundgarden with Rusty Cage, and Childbirth with Tech Bro. Pat Winstanley of St. Catharines, Ontario, guessed the headline we were looking for. Elon Musk proposes a steel cage match fight with Mark Zuckerberg. People everywhere cheer for the cage. Congratulations, Pat. A day six tote bag is on its way to you soon. Now here's this week's clue. What's your name? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? So what is the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. And make sure you include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize again is a day6 tote bag. You can listen to the clue anytime you want at cbc.ca slash day6. from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tesfu Tedessa. Our intern is Rihanna Lim. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiak. Our senior producer is Ford Westmacott. I'm Emil Niazi, in for Brent Bambury. Thank you for listening to Day 6. These guys are all a little emotionally stunted and a little petty. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.